all purses were equally lean. Now I will tell thee an unusual truth about men and sons of men. It is this, that what each of us calls our necessary expenses will always grow to equal our incomes unless we protest to the contrary. Confuse not the necessary expenses with thy desires. Each of you, together with your good families, have more desires than your earnings can gratify. Therefore are thy earnings spent to gratify these desires in so far as they will go. Still thou retainest many ungratified desires. All men are burdened with more desires than they can gratify. Because of my wealth, thinkest thou I may gratify every desire? Tis a false idea. There are limits to my time. There are limits to my strength. There are limits to the distance I may travel. There are limits to what I may eat. There are limits to the zest with which I may enjoy. I say to you that just as weeds grow in a field wherever the farmer leaves space for their roots, even so freely do desires grow in men whenever there is a possibility of their being gratified. Thy desires are a multitude, and those that thou mayest gratify are but few. Study thoughtfully thy accustomed habits of living. Herein may be most often found certain accepted expenses that may wisely be reduced or eliminated. Let thy motto be one hundred percent of appreciated value demanded for each coin spent. Therefore engrave upon the clay each thing for which thou desireth to spend. Select those that are necessary and others that are possible through the expenditure of nine-tenths of thy income. Cross out the rest and consider them but a part of that great multitude of desires that must go unsatisfied and regret them not. Budget then thy necessary expenses. Touch not the one-tenth that is fattening thy purse. Let this be thy great desire that is being fulfilled. Keep working with thy budget. Keep adjusting it to help thee. Make it thy first assistant in defending thy fattening purse. Hereupon one of the students wearing a robe of red and gold arose and said, I am a free man. I believe that it is my right to enjoy the good things of life. Therefore do I rebel against the slavery of a budget which determines just how much I may spend and for what. I feel it would take much pleasure from my life and make me little more than a pack-ass to carry a burden. To him Arkad replied, Who, my friend, would determine thy budget? I would make it for myself, responded the protesting one. In that case... Were a pack-ass to budget his burden, would he include therein jewels and rugs and heavy bars of gold? Not so. He would include hay and grain and a bag of water for the desert trail. The purpose of a budget is to help thy purse to fatten. It is to assist thee to have thy necessities and, insofar as attainable, thy other desires— it is to enable thee to realize thy most cherished desires by defending them from thy casual wishes. Like a bright light in a dark cave, thy budget shows up the leaks from thy purse and enables thee to stop them and control thy expenditures for definite and gratifying purposes. This, then, is the second cure for a lean purse. Budget thy expenses, that thou mayest have coins to pay for thy necessities, to pay for thy enjoyments, and to gratify thy worthwhile desires without spending more than nine-tenths of thy earnings. The Third Cure Make Thy Gold Multiply Behold, thy lean purse is fattening! Thou hast disciplined thyself to leave therein one-tenth of all thou earneth, 
Thou hast controlled thy expenditures to protect thy growing treasure. Next, we will consider means to put thy treasure to labor and to increase. Gold in a purse is gratifying to own and satisfieth a miserly soul, but earns nothing. The gold we may retain from our earnings is but the start. The earnings it will make shall build our fortunes. So spoke Arkad upon the third day to his class. How, therefore, may we put our gold to work? My first investment was unfortunate, for I lost all. Its tale I will relate later. My first profitable investment was a loan I made to a man named Agar, a shieldmaker. Once each year did he buy large shipments of bronze brought from across the sea to use in his trade, Lacking sufficient capital to pay the merchants, he would borrow from those who had extra coins. He was an honorable man. His borrowing he would repay, together with a liberal rental, as he sold his shields. Each time I loaned to him, I loaned back also the rental he had paid to me. Therefore not only did my capital increase, but its earnings likewise increased. Most gratifying was it to have these sums returned to my purse. I tell you, my students, a man's wealth is not in the coins he carries in his purse. It is the income he buildeth, the golden stream that continually floweth into his purse and keepeth it always bulging. That is what every man desireth. That is what thou, each one of thee, desireth an income that continueth to come whether thou work or travel. Great income I have acquired, so great that I am called a very rich man. My loans to Agar were my first training in profitable investment. Gaining wisdom from this experience, I extended my loans and investments as my capital increased. From a few sources at first, from many sources later, flowed into my purse a golden stream of wealth available for such wise uses as I should decide. Behold, from my humble earnings, I had begotten a horde of golden slaves, each laboring and earning more gold. As they labored for me, so their children also labored, and their children's children, until great was the income from their combined efforts. Gold increaseth rapidly when making reasonable earnings, as thou wilt see from the following. A farmer, when his first son was born, took ten pieces of silver to a moneylender and asked him to keep it on rental for his son until he became twenty years of age. This the moneylender did, and agreed the rental should be one-fourth of its value each four years. The farmer asked, because this sum he had set aside as belonging to his son, that the rental be added to the principal. When the boy had reached the age of twenty years, the farmer again went to the moneylender to inquire about the silver. The moneylender explained that because this sum had been increased by compound interest, the original ten pieces of silver had now grown to thirty and one-half pieces. The farmer was well pleased, and because the son did not need the coins, he left them with the moneylender. When the son became fifty years of age, the father meantime having passed to the other world, the moneylender paid the son in settlement one hundred and sixty-seven pieces of silver. Thus in fifty years had the investment multiplied itself at rental almost seventeen times. This, then, is the third cure for a lean purse. To put each coin to laboring, that it may reproduce its kind, even as the flocks of the field, and help bring to thee income, a stream of wealth that shall flow constantly into thy purse. The Fourth Cure Guard Thy Treasures From Loss Misfortune loves a shining mark. 
gold in a man's purse must be guarded with firmness, else it be lost. Thus it is wise that we must first secure small amounts and learn to protect them before the gods entrust us with larger. So spoke Arkad upon the fourth day to his class. Every owner of gold is tempted by opportunities whereby it would seem that he could make large sums by its investment in most plausible projects. Often friends and relatives are eagerly entering such investment and urge him to follow. The first sound principle of investment is security for thy principle. Is it wise to be intrigued by larger earnings when thy principle may be lost? I say not. The penalty of risk is probable loss. Study carefully before parting with thy treasure each assurance that it may be safely reclaimed. Be not misled by thine own romantic desires to make wealth rapidly. Before thou loan it to any man, assure thyself of his ability to repay and his reputation for doing so, that thou mayest not unwittingly be making him a present of thy hard-earned treasure. Before thou entrust it as an investment in any field, Acquaint thyself with the dangers which may beset it. My own first investment was a tragedy to me at the time. The guarded savings of a year I did entrust to a brickmaker named Asmer, who was traveling over the far seas and in Tyre agreed to buy for me the rare jewels of the Phoenicians. These we would sell upon his return and divide the profits. The Phoenicians were scoundrels and sold them bits of glass. My treasure was lost. Today my training would show to me at once the folly of entrusting a brickmaker to buy jewels. Therefore do I advise thee from the wisdom of my experiences, be not too confident of thine own wisdom in entrusting thy treasures to the possible pitfalls of investments. Better by far to consult the wisdom of those experienced in handling money for profit. Such advice is freely given for the asking, and may readily possess a value equal in gold to the sum thou considerest investing. In truth, such is its actual value if it save thee from loss. This, then, is the fourth cure for a lean purse— and of great importance if it prevent thy purse from being emptied once it has become well filled. Guard thy treasure from loss by investing only where thy principle is safe, where it may be reclaimed if desirable, and where thou wilt not fail to collect a fair rental. Consult with wise men. Secure the advice of those experienced in the profitable handling of gold. Let their wisdom protect thy treasure from unsafe investments. This ends Disc 1. The Richest Man in Babylon, Disc 2. The Fifth Cure Make of thy dwelling a profitable investment. If a man setteth aside nine parts of his earnings upon which to live and enjoy life, and if any part of this nine parts he can turn into a profitable investment without detriment to his well-being, then so much faster will his treasures grow. So spake Arkad to his class at their fifth lesson. All too many of our men of Babylon do raise their families in unseemly quarters. They do pay to exacting landlords liberal rentals for rooms where their wives have not a spot to raise the blooms that gladden a woman's heart, and their children have no place to play their games except in the unclean alleys. No man's family can fully enjoy life unless they do have a plot of ground wherein children can play in the clean earth and where the wife may raise not only blossoms but good rich herbs to feed her family. To a man's heart it brings gladness to eat the figs from his own trees and the grapes of his own vines. 
to own his own domicile and to have it a place he is proud to care for, putteth confidence in his heart and greater effort behind all his endeavors. Therefore do I recommend that every man own the roof that sheltereth him and his. Nor is it beyond the ability of any well-intentioned man to own his home. Hath not our great king so widely extended the walls of Babylon that within them much land is now unused and may be purchased at sums most reasonable? Also I say to you, my students, that the money-lenders gladly consider the desires of men who seek homes and land for their families. Readily may thou borrow to pay the brickmaker and the builder for such commendable purposes, if thou can show a reasonable portion of the necessary sum which thou thyself hath provided for the purpose. Then when the house be built, thou canst pay the money-lender with the same regularity as thou didst pay the landlord, because each payment will reduce thy indebtedness to the money-lender, a few years will satisfy his loan. Then will thy heart be glad, because thou wilt own in thy own right a valuable property, and thy only cost will be the king's taxes. Also wilt thy good wife go more often to the river to wash thy robes, that each time returning she may bring a goatskin of water to pour upon the growing things. Thus come many blessings to the man who owneth his own house." and greatly will it reduce his cost of living, making available more of his earnings for pleasures and the gratification of his desires. This, then, is the fifth cure for a lean purse. Own thy own home. The sixth cure. Ensure a future income. The life of every man proceedeth from his childhood to his old age. This is the path of life, and no man may deviate from it, unless the gods call him prematurely to the world beyond. Therefore do I say that it behooves a man to make preparation for a suitable income in the days to come, when he is no longer young, and to make preparations for his family, should he be no longer with them, to comfort and support them. This lesson shall instruct thee in providing a full purse when time has made thee less able to earn. So Arkad addressed his class upon the sixth day. The man who, because of his understanding of the laws of wealth, acquireth a growing surplus, should give thought to those future days. He should plan certain investments or provisions that may endure safely for many years, yet will be available when the time arrives which he has so wisely anticipated. There are diverse ways by which a man may provide with safety for his future. He may provide a hiding place and there bury a secret treasure. Yet no matter with what skill it be hidden, it may nevertheless become the loot of thieves." For this reason I recommend not this plan. A man may buy houses or lands for this purpose. If wisely chosen as to their usefulness and value in the future, they are permanent in their value and their earnings, or their sale will provide well for his purpose. A man may loan a small sum to the moneylender and increase it at regular periods. The rental which the moneylender adds to this will largely add to its increase. I do know a sandal-maker named Ansan, who explained to me not long ago that each week for eight years he had deposited with his money-lender two pieces of silver. The money-lender had but recently given him an accounting over which he greatly rejoiced. The total of his small deposits with their rental at the customary rate of one-fourth their value for each four years had now become a thousand and forty pieces of silver. I did gladly encourage him further by demonstrating to him with my knowledge of the numbers that in twelve years more, if he would keep his regular deposits of but two pieces of silver each week, the moneylender would then owe him four thousand pieces of silver, 
a worthy competence for the rest of his life. Surely when such a small payment made with regularity doth produce such profitable results, no man can afford not to insure a treasure for his old age and the protection of his family, no matter how prosperous his business and his investments may be. I would that I might say more about this. In my mind rests a belief that some day wise-thinking men will devise a plan to insure against death, whereby many men pay in but a trifling sum regularly, the aggregate making a handsome sum for the family of each member who passeth to the beyond. This do I see as something desirable and which I could highly recommend. But today it is not possible because it must reach beyond the life of any man or any partnership to operate. It must be as stable as the king's throne. Some day do I feel that such a plan shall come to pass and be a great blessing to many men, because even the first small payment will make available a snug fortune for the family of a member, should he pass on. But because we live in our own day, and not in the days which are to come, must we take advantage of those means and ways of accomplishing our purposes. Therefore do I recommend to all men that they, by wise and well-thought-out methods, to provide against a lean purse in their mature years. For a lean purse to a man no longer able to earn or to a family without its head is a sore tragedy. This, then, is the sixth cure for a lean purse. Provide in advance for the needs of thy growing age and the protection of thy family. The seventh cure. Increase thy ability to earn. This day do I speak to thee, my students, of one of the most vital remedies for a lean purse. Yet I will not talk of gold, but of yourselves, of the men beneath the robes of many colors who do sit before me. I will talk to you of those things within the minds and lives of men which do work for or against their success. So did Arkad address his class upon the seventh day. Not long ago came to me a young man seeking to borrow. When I questioned him the cause of his necessity, he complained that his earnings were insufficient to pay his expenses. Thereupon I explained to him, this being the case, he was a poor customer for the moneylender, as he possessed no surplus earning capacity to repay the loan. What you need, young man, I told him, is to earn more coins. What dost thou to increase thy capacity to earn? All that I can do, he replied. Six times within two moons have I approached my master to request my pay be increased, but without success. No man can go oftener than that. We may smile at his simplicity, yet he did possess one of the vital requirements to increase his earnings. Within him was a strong desire to earn more, a proper and commendable desire. Preceding accomplishment must be desire. Thy desires must be strong and definite. General desires are but weak longings. For a man to wish to be rich is of little purpose. For a man to desire five pieces of gold is a tangible desire which he can press to fulfillment. After he has backed his desire for five pieces of gold with strength of purpose to secure it, next he can find similar ways to obtain ten pieces, and then twenty pieces, and later a thousand pieces, and, behold, he has become wealthy. In learning to secure his one definite small desire, he hath trained himself to secure a larger one. This is the process by which wealth is accumulated, first in small sums, then in larger ones as a man learns and becomes more capable. Desires must be simple 
and definite. They defeat their own purpose should they be too many, too confusing, or beyond a man's training to accomplish. As a man perfecteth himself in his calling, even so doth his ability to earn increase. In those days when I was a humble scribe carving upon the clay for a few coppers each day, I observed that other workers did more than I and were paid more. Therefore did I determine that I would be exceeded by none. Nor did it take long for me to discover the reason for their greater success. More interest in my work, more concentration upon my task, more persistence in my effort, and, behold, few men could carve more tablets in a day than I. With reasonable promptness my increased skill was rewarded, nor was it necessary for me to go six times to my master to request recognition. The more of wisdom we know, the more we may earn. That man who seeks to learn more of his craft shall be richly rewarded, if he is an artisan, he may seek to learn the methods and the tools of those most skillful in the same line. If he laboreth at the law or at healing, he may consult and exchange knowledge with others of his calling. If he be a merchant, he may continually seek better goods that can be purchased at lower prices. Always do the affairs of men change and improve because keen-minded men seek greater skill that they may better serve those upon whose patronage they depend. Therefore, I urge all men to be in the front rank of progress and not to stand still, lest they be left behind. Many things come to make a man's life rich with gainful experiences. Such things as the following a man must do if he respects himself. He must pay his debts with all the promptness within his power, not purchasing that for which he is unable to pay. He must take care of his family that they may think and speak well of him. He must make a will of record that, in case the gods call him, proper and honorable division of his property be accomplished. He must have compassion upon those who are injured and smitten by misfortune and aid them within reasonable limits. He must do deeds of thoughtfulness to those dear to him. Thus the seventh and last remedy for a lean purse is to cultivate thy own powers, to study and become wiser, to become more skillful, to so act as to respect thyself. Thereby shalt thou acquire confidence in thyself to achieve thy carefully considered desires. These, then, are the seven cures for a lean purse, which, out of the experience of a long and successful life, I do urge for all men who desire wealth. There is more gold in Babylon, my students, than thou dreamest of. There is abundance for all. Go thou forth and practice these truths, that thou mayest prosper and grow wealthy, as is thy right. Go thou forth and teach these truths, that every honorable subject of his majesty may also share liberally in the ample wealth of our beloved city. Chapter 4 Meet the Goddess of Good Luck Babylonian proverb. If a man be lucky, there is no foretelling the possible extent of his good fortune. Pitch him into the Euphrates, and like as not, he will swim out with a pearl in his hand. The desire to be lucky is universal. It was just as strong in the breasts of men four thousand years ago in ancient Babylon as it is in the hearts of men today. We all hope to be favored by the whimsical goddess of good luck. Is there some way we can meet her and attract not only her favorable attention, but her generous favors? Is there a way to attract good luck? That is just what the men of ancient Babylon wished to know. It is exactly what they decided to find out.
They were shrewd men and keen thinkers. That explains why their city became the richest and most powerful city of their time. In that distant past, they had no schools or colleges. Nevertheless, they had a center of learning, and a very practical one it was. Among the towered buildings in Babylon was one that ranked in importance with the palace of the king, the hanging gardens, and the temples of the gods. You will find scant mention of it in the history books, more likely no mention at all, yet it exerted a powerful influence upon the thought of that time. This building was the temple of learning where the wisdom of the past was expounded by voluntary teachers and where subjects of popular interest were discussed in open forums. Within its walls, all men met as equals. The humblest of slaves could dispute with impunity the opinions of a prince of the royal house. Among the many who frequented the Temple of Learning was a wise rich man named Arkad, called the richest man in Babylon. He had his own special hall where almost any evening a large group of men, some old, some very young, but mostly middle-aged, gathered to discuss and argue interesting subjects. Suppose we listen in to see whether they knew how to attract good luck. The sun had just set like a great red ball of fire shining through the haze of desert dust when Arkad strolled to his accustomed platform. Already full fourscore men were awaiting his arrival, reclining on their small rugs spread upon the floor. More were still arriving. "'What shall we discuss this night?' Arkad inquired. After a brief hesitation, a tall cloth weaver addressed him, arising as was the custom. "'I have a subject I would like to hear discussed, yet hesitate to offer, lest it seem ridiculous to you, Arkad, and my good friends here.' Upon being urged to offer it, both by Arkad and by calls from the others, he continued. This day I have been lucky, for I have found a purse in which there are pieces of gold. To continue to be lucky is my great desire. Feeling that all men share with me this desire, I do suggest we debate how to attract good luck, that we may discover ways it can be enticed to one. A most interesting subject has been offered, Arkad commented, one most worthy of our discussion. To some men, good luck bespeaks but a chance happening that, like an accident, may befall one without purpose or reason. Others do believe that the instigator of all good fortune is our most bounteous goddess Ashtar, ever anxious to reward with generous gifts those who please her. Speak up, my friends, what say you? Shall we seek to find if there be means by which good luck may be enticed to visit each and all of us? Yea, yea, and much of it! responded the growing group of eager listeners. Thereupon Arkad continued, To start our discussion, let us first hear from those among us who have enjoyed experiences similar to that of the cloth weaver in finding or receiving, without effort upon their part, valuable treasures or jewels. There was a pause in which all looked about, expecting someone to reply. But no one did. What? No one? Arkad asked. Then rare indeed must be this kind of good luck. Who now will offer a suggestion as to where we shall continue our search? That I will do, spoke a well-robed young man, arising. When a man speaketh of luck, is it not natural that his thoughts turn to the gaming tables? Is it not there we find many men courting the favor of the goddess in hope she will bless them with rich winnings? As he resumed his seat, a voice called, Do not stop! Continue thy story! Tell us, didst thou find favor with the goddess at the gaming tables? 
Did she turn the cubes with red side up so thou filled thy purse at the dealer's expense, or did she permit the blue sides to come up so the dealer raked in thy hard-earned pieces of silver? The young man joined the good-natured laughter, then replied, I am not averse to admitting she seemed not to know I was even there. But how about the rest of you? Have you found her waiting about such places to roll the cubes in your favor? We are eager to hear as well as to learn. A wise start, broke in Arcad. We meet here to consider all sides of each question. To ignore the gaming table would be to overlook an instinct common to most men. The love of taking a chance with a small amount of silver in the hope of winning much gold. That doth remind me of the races but yesterday, called out another listener. If the goddess frequents the gaming tables, certainly she doth not overlook the races where the gilded chariots and the foaming horses offer far more excitement. Tell us honestly, Arcad, didst she whisper to you to place your bet upon those gray horses from Nineveh yesterday? I was standing just behind thee and could scarce believe my ears when I heard thee place thy bet upon the grays. Thou knowest as well as any of us that no team in all Assyria can beat our beloved bays in a fair race. Didst the goddess whisper in thy ear to bet upon the greys, because at the last turn the inside black would stumble and so interfere with our bays that the greys would win the race and score an unearned victory? Arcad smiled indulgently at the banter. What reason have we to feel the good goddess would take that much interest in any man's bet upon a horse race? To me she is a goddess of love and dignity whose pleasure it is to aid those who are in need and to reward those who are deserving. I look to find her, not at the gaming tables or the races where men lose more gold than they win, but in other places where the doings of men are more worthwhile and more worthy of reward. In tilling the soil... In honest trading, in all of man's occupations, there is opportunity to make a profit upon his efforts and his transactions. Perhaps not all the time will he be rewarded, because sometimes his judgment may be faulty, and other times the winds and the weather may defeat his efforts. Yet, if he persists, he may usually expect to realize his profit. This is so because the chances of profit are always in his favor. But when a man playeth the games, the situation is reversed, for the chances of profit are always against him and always in favor of the gamekeeper. The game is so arranged that it will always favor the keeper. It is his business at which he plans to make a liberal profit for himself from the coins bet by the players. Few players realize how certain are the gamekeeper's profits and how uncertain are their own chances to win. For example, let us consider wagers placed upon the cube. Each time it is cast, we bet which side will be uppermost. If it be the red side, the game master pays to us four times our bet. But if any other of the five sides come uppermost, we lose our bet. Thus the figures show that for each cast we have five chances to lose, but because the red pays four for one, we have four chances to win. In a night's play the game master can expect to keep for his profit one-fifth of all the coins wagered. Can a man expect to win more than occasionally against odds so arranged that he should lose one-fifth of all his bets? Yet some men do win large sums at times, volunteered one of the listeners. Quite so, they do, Arcad continued. Realizing this, the question comes to me whether money secured in such ways brings permanent value to those who are thus lucky. 
Among my acquaintances are many of the successful men of Babylon, yet among them I am unable to name a single one who started his success from such a source. You who are gathered here tonight know many more of our substantial citizens. To me it would be of much interest to learn how many of our successful citizens can credit the gaming tables with their start to success. Suppose each of you tell of those you know. What say you? After a prolonged silence, a wag ventured, Wouldst thy inquiry include the gamekeepers? If you think of no one else, Arkad responded, if not one of you can think of anyone else, then how about yourselves? Are there any consistent winners with us who hesitate to advise such a source for their incomes? His challenge was answered by a series of groans from the rear taken up and spread amid much laughter. It would seem we are not seeking good luck in such places as the goddess frequents, he continued. Therefore let us explore other fields. We have not found it in picking up lost wallets, neither have we found it haunting the gaming tables. As to the races... I must confess to have lost far more coins there than I have ever won. Now suppose we consider our trades and businesses. Is it not natural, if we conclude a profitable transaction, to consider it not good luck but a just reward for our efforts? I am inclined to think we may be overlooking the gifts of the goddess." Perhaps she really does assist us when we do not appreciate her generosity. Who can suggest further discussion? Thereupon an elderly merchant arose, smoothing his genteel white robe. With thy permission, most honorable Arcad and my friends, I offer a suggestion. If, as you have said... We take credit to our own industry and ability for our business success. Why not consider the successes we almost enjoyed but which escaped us, happenings which would have been most profitable? They would have been rare examples of good luck if they had actually happened. Because they were not brought to fulfillment, we cannot consider them as our just rewards. Surely many men here have such experiences to relate. Here is a wise approach, Arquette approved. Who among you have had good luck within your grasp only to see it escape? Many hands were raised, among them that of the merchant. Arkad motioned to him to speak. As you suggested this approach, we should like to hear first from you. I will gladly relate a tale, he resumed, that doth illustrate how closely unto a man good luck may approach, and how blindly he may permit it to escape, much to his loss and later regret. Many years ago, when I was a young man, just married and well started to earning, my father did come one day and urge most strongly that I enter upon an investment. The son of one of his good friends had taken notice of a barren tract of land not far beyond the outer walls of our city. It lay high above the canal where no water could reach it. The son of my father's friend devised a plan to purchase this land, build three large water wheels that could be operated by oxen, and thereby raise the life-giving waters to the fertile soil. This accomplished, he planned to divide it into small tracts and sell to the residents of the city for herb patches. The son of my father's friend did not possess sufficient gold to complete such an undertaking. Like myself, he was a young man, earning a fair sum. His father, like mine, was a man of large family and small means. He, therefore, decided to interest a group of men to enter the enterprise with him. The group was to comprise twelve, 
each of whom must be a money earner and agree to pay one-tenth of his earnings into the enterprise until the land was made ready for sale. All would then share justly in the profits in proportion to their investment. Thou, my son, bespoke my father unto me, art now in thy young manhood. It is my deep desire that thou begin the building of a valuable estate for thyself, that thou mayest become respected among men. I desire to see thou profit from a knowledge of the thoughtless mistakes of thy father. This do I most ardently desire, my father, I replied. Then this do I advise. Do what I should have done at thy age. From thy earnings keep out one-tenth to put into favorable investments. With this one-tenth of thy earnings and what it will also earn, thou canst, before thou art my age, accumulate for thyself a valuable estate. Thy words are words of wisdom, my father. Greatly do I desire riches. Yet there are many uses to which my earnings are called. Therefore do I hesitate to do as thou dost advise. I am young. There is plenty of time. So I thought at thy age. Yet behold, many years have passed, and I have not yet made the beginning. We live in a different age, my father. I shall avoid thy mistakes. Opportunity stands before thee, my son. It is offering a chance that may lead to wealth. I beg of thee, do not delay. Go upon the morrow to the son of my friend, and bargain with him to pay ten percent of thy earnings into this investment. Go promptly upon the morrow. Opportunity waits for no man. Today it is here, soon it is gone, therefore delay not. In spite of the advice of my father, I did hesitate. There were beautiful new robes just brought by the tradesmen from the east, robes of such richness and beauty my good wife and I felt we must each possess one. Should I agree to pay one-tenth of my earnings into the enterprise, we must deprive ourselves of these and other pleasures we dearly desired. I delayed making a decision until it was too late, much to my subsequent regret. The enterprise did prove to be more profitable than any man had prophesied. This is my tale, showing how I did permit good luck to escape. In this tale we see how good luck waits to come to that man who accepts opportunity, commented a swarthy man of the desert. To the building of an estate... There must always be the beginning. That start may be a few pieces of gold or silver which a man diverts from his earnings to his first investment. I myself am the owner of many herds. The start of my herds I did begin when I was a mere boy and did purchase with one piece of silver a young calf. This being the beginning of my wealth was of great importance to me. To take his first start to building an estate is as good luck as can come to any man. With all men, that first step, which changes them from men who earn from their own labor to men who draw dividends from the earnings of their gold, is important. Some fortunately take it when young and thereby outstrip in financial success those who do take it later or those unfortunate men, like the father of this merchant, who never take it. Had our friend the merchant taken this step in his early manhood when this opportunity came to him, this day he would be blessed with much more of this world's goods. Should the good luck of our friend the cloth weaver cause him to take such a step at this time, it will indeed be but the beginning of much greater good fortune. Thank you. I like to speak also, a stranger from another country arose. I am a Syrian, 
Not so well do I speak your tongue. I wish to call this friend, the merchant, a name. Maybe you think it not polite, this name. Yet I wish to call him that. But, alas, I not know your word for it. If I do call it in Syrian, you will not understand. Therefore, please, some good gentleman, tell me that right name you call man who puts off doing those things that mighty good for him. Procrastinator, called a voice. That's him, shouted the Syrian, waving his hands excitedly. He accepts not opportunity when she comes. He waits. He says I have much business right now. By and by I talk to you. Opportunity she will not wait for such slow fellow. She thinks if a man desires to be lucky he will step quick. Any man who not step quick when opportunity comes. He, big procrastinator like our friend, this merchant. The merchant arose and bowed good-naturedly in response to the laughter. My admiration to the stranger within our gates who hesitates not to speak the truth. And now let us hear another tale of opportunity. Who has for us another experience? demanded Arkad. I have responded a red-robed man of middle age. I am a buyer of animals, mostly camels and horses. Sometimes I do also buy the sheep and goats. The tale I am about to relate will tell truthfully how opportunity came one night when I did least expect it. Perhaps for this reason I did let it escape. Of this you shall be the judge." Returning to the city one evening after a disheartening ten days' journey in search of camels, I was much angered to find the gates of the city closed and locked, while my slaves spread our tent for the night which we looked to spend with little food and no water. I was approached by an elderly farmer who, like ourselves, found himself locked outside. Honored sir, he addressed me. From thy appearance, I do judge thee to be a buyer. If this be so, much would I like to sell to thee the most excellent flock of sheep just driven up. Alas, my good wife lies very sick with the fever. I must return with all haste. Buy thou my sheep, that I and my slaves may mount our camels and travel back without delay. So dark it was that I could not see his flock but from the bleating I did know it must be large. Having wasted ten days searching for camels I could not find, I was glad to bargain with him. In his anxiety he did set a most reasonable price. I accepted, well knowing my slaves could drive the flock through the city gates in the morning and sell at a substantial profit. The bargain concluded, I called my slaves to bring torches that we might count the flock which the farmer declared to contain nine hundred. I shall not burden you, my friends, with a description of our difficulty in attempting to count so many thirsty, restless, milling sheep. It proved to be an impossible task. Therefore, I bluntly informed the farmer I would count them at daylight and pay him then. Please, most honorable sir, he pleaded, pay me but two-thirds of the price tonight, that I may be on my way. I will leave my most intelligent and educated slave to assist to make the count in the morning. He is trustworthy, and to him thou canst pay the balance. But I was stubborn and refused to make payment that night. Next morning, before I awoke, the city gates opened, and four buyers rushed out in search of flocks. They were most eager and willing to pay high prices, because the city was threatened with siege and food was not plentiful. Nearly three times the price at which he had offered the flock to me did the old farmer receive for it. Thus was rare good luck allowed to escape. 
Here is a tale most unusual, commented Arkad. What wisdom doth it suggest? The wisdom of making a payment immediately when we are convinced our bargain is wise, suggested a venerable saddle-maker. If the bargain be good, then dost thou need protection against thy own weaknesses as much as against any other man. We mortals are changeable. Alas, I must say more apt to change our minds when right than wrong. Wrong, we are stubborn indeed. Right, we are prone to vacillate and let opportunity escape. My first judgment is my best. Yet always have I found it difficult to compel myself to proceed with a good bargain when made. Therefore, as a protection against my own weaknesses, I do make a prompt deposit thereon. This doth save me from later regrets for the good luck that should have been mine. Thank you. Again I like to speak. The Syrian was upon his feet once more. These tales much alike. Each time opportunity fly away for same reason. Each time she come to procrastinator, bringing good plan. Each time they hesitate, not say, right now, best time, I do it quick. How can men succeed that way? Wise are thy words, my friend, responded the buyer. Good luck fled from procrastination in both these tales. Yet this is not unusual. The spirit of procrastination is within all men. We desire riches. Yet how often, when opportunity doth appear before us, that spirit of procrastination from within doth urge various delays in our acceptance. In listening to it, we do become our own worst enemies. In my younger days, I did not know it by this long word our friend from Syria doth enjoy. I did think at first it was my own poor judgment that did cause me loss at many profitable trades. Later I did credit it to my stubborn disposition. At last... I did recognize it for what it was, a habit of needless delaying where action was required, action prompt and decisive. How I did hate it when its true character stood revealed. With the bitterness of a wild ass hitched to a chariot, I did break loose from this enemy to my success. Thank you. I like ask question from Mr. Merchant. The Syrian was speaking. You wear fine robes, not like those of poor man. You speak like successful man. Tell us, do you listen now when procrastination whispers in your ear? Like our friend the buyer, I also had to recognize and conquer procrastination, responded the merchant. To me... It proved to be an enemy ever watching and waiting to thwart my accomplishments. The tale I did relate is but one of many similar instances I could tell to show how it drove away my opportunities. Tis not difficult to conquer once understood. No man willingly permits the thief to rob his bins of grain, nor does any man willingly permit an enemy to drive away his customers and rob him of his profits. When once I did recognize that such acts as these my enemy was committing, with determination I conquered him. So must every man master his own spirit of procrastination before he can expect to share in the rich treasures of Babylon. What sayest, Arkad? Because thou art the richest man in Babylon, many do proclaim thee to be the luckiest. Dost agree with me that no man can arrive at a full measure of success until he hath completely crushed the spirit of procrastination within him? It is even as thou sayest, Arkad admitted. During my long life, 
I have watched generation following generation marching forward along those avenues of trade, science, and learning that lead to success in life. Opportunities came to all these men. Some grasped theirs and moved steadily to the gratification of their deepest desires, but the majority hesitated, faltered, and fell behind. Arkad turned to the cloth weaver. Thou didst suggest that we debate good luck. Let us hear what thou now thinkest upon the subject. I do see good luck in a different light. I had thought of it as something most desirable that might happen to a man without effort upon.